Welcome back to the Cory Doctorow podcast, World War III edition. I don't know about you, but I am a little freaked out. As someone whose family comes from both Russia and Ukraine, not to mention Poland, Belarus, and Romania, it's a territory I have a lot of feelings about, not to mention blood relations and whom I care about a lot. So if you're wondering why I haven't written about this in any depth, it's because I'm still uh, trying to process it, and I haven't found a whole lot that I consider super trustworthy, and I also... I'm keenly aware of how little I know. And so I don't want to be one of those people who just spouts off because it's in the news. But uh, for those of you who are worried about your loved ones and your comrades and your colleagues and your friends in the anti-war movements in Russia and in the occupied territories of Ukraine, I extend my solidarity and good wishes, and to those people, I extend my solidarity and good wishes and hope for your safety and the imminent de-escalation of this idiotic, horrible conflict. I was raised in the anti-nuclear proliferation movement, and, um, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to uh, get Canada out of the nuclear weapons game. We supplied all the uranium and the cruise missile testing sites and so on for the U.S. military apparatus to say nothing of our involvement in NORAD and NATO. And, uh, you know, I know what it feels like to feel like it could all go up in a puff of smoke. It's a feeling that's never been far from the imaginations of those of us who grew up really paying attention to these issues and trying to do something about them. And it's very keenly felt right now. Well, I hope that you are able to find some solace. I, as ever, find my solace by working. That's my thing. That's how I wrote four books during lockdown. And one of the things that I like doing is talking about the issues that matter to me. So a little later today, I'm going to be doing a talk about dystopia, panel about dystopia. This is Sunday, the 27th of February, with City Lights Books for uh, PM Press and a new book they've done on uh, radical pulp science fiction. That'll be available as audio, and I'll put it in my newsletter and in my daily Twitter feed and so on if you want to catch that up when it's done. It will have already been done by the time you hear this. On the 4th of March... I'm giving a talk for the K-Online conference in Poland uh, called Seize the Means of Computation. And uh, 19th and 20th of April, I'm going to be keynoting the Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise Conference in Philly. As I say, when I'm anxious, I write. It's been a pretty productive writing week. Lots of progress on Picks and Shovels, the second Martin Hench book, and also on Vigilant, the little brother story about remote invigilation and proctoring, test-taking, distance learning. And I'm also working on an essay for the Electronic Frontier Foundation about Jeffersonian content moderation, the idea that rather than trying to make a single monolithic, perfect content moderation stack out of something like Facebook, we should pluralize decision-making about who speaks and how by decentralizing Facebook and letting there be lots of different forums in which people speak and in which they can create their own speech norms. My recovery from my hip replacement surgery hit a real milestone this week. My incision is now healed enough that I can swim. Swimming has been glorious and an absolute balm to both body and soul. 
I highly, highly recommend generic underwater MP3 players and audiobooks while swimming. I've been listening to Graver and Wengrove's book, The Rise of Everything, which is a book that is so remarkable that I despair writing the review because I just don't know how I'll get it all together. And I've also been able to do a little socializing as I've recovered. Uh, Yesterday, I went with a bunch of game development friends who worked on the original Uncharted franchise to see the Uncharted movie in a screening room that they'd rented out here in Burbank. And it was a hoot. It buckled a lot of swash. If you're thinking about seeing a movie that's like Indiana Jones with a giant body count, I can recommend it to you. And then this evening, I'm uh, having some company over. I'm going to see my old pal Mark Laidlaw, who, speaking of game devs, is the guy who wrote Half-Life, but is someone I first knew as a science fiction novelist from his debut novel, Dad's Nuke, and then other such great novels as California with a K. Mark's a really wonderful writer, and he continues to write now. He's kind of gone back to it prose as opposed to games after a very illustrious career in the game industry. And he moved to LA a couple of months ago and he's going to come over for some drinks tonight. I'm really looking forward to that. So this week's reading is my second to most recent medium column. It's a column that was inspired by a debate with an old pal on Twitter who told me that he thought that antitrust was a waste of time for leftists because it was about finding market solutions and that you had to believe that markets were the best way to allocate resources and that markets were a source of wisdom in order to believe in antitrust. And I argued with him that antitrust is about power. And so I wrote a column about this called We Should Not Endure a King. And that's what I'm going to read for you now. We Should Not Endure a King. Antitrust is a political cause, not an economic one. From doctoro.medium.com If we would not endure a king as a political power, we should not endure a king over the production, transportation, or sale of the necessaries of life. If we would not submit to an emperor, we should not submit to an autocrat of trade with the power to prevent competition and fix the price of any commodity. Senator John Sherman, 1890, arguing for the passage of the Sherman Act. Conservatism consists of exactly one proposition. To wit, there must be in-groups whom the law protects but does not bind, alongside out-groups whom the law binds but does not protect. Frank Wilhoit, Crooked Timber Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Johnny Hart, the Wizard of Id People of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion, but the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public, or in some contrivance to raise prices. Adam Smith, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. Dear fellow leftists, please don't let the right trick you into thinking that they own antitrust. Again... The fight against commercial monopolies has its origins in the struggle for self-determination. Monopolized sectors, after all, have two powerful advantages. One, they are concentrated, which makes it easier for them to come to agreement on how to lobby governments, and two, they are highly profitable, 
because monopolists can screw their workers, suppliers, and customers and get away with it. Because they are profitable and concentrated, monopolies can, one, arrive at a common lobbying position, and two, spend that lobbying position into law. Money, after all, is power, and concentrated money is concentrated power. Anyone who has a stake in democratic governance, in letting people elect their leaders and hold them to account, should hate monopoly. Thomas Jefferson railed against the decision to exclude anti-monopoly from the Bill of Rights. When John Sherman rallied his fellow senators to vote for his landmark antitrust bill in 1890, he called monopolists autocrats of trade, comparing them to kings and emperors. Jefferson and Sherman both understood that governments could not do the people's bidding if wealth and thus power was gathered into a small number of hands. The right hates antitrust. As the political scientist Corey Robin wrote in The Reactionary Mind, the defining principle of all right-wing movements is that some of us were born to rule and others, that is, most of us, to be ruled over. Seen up close, different right-wing movements have different criteria for selecting their rulers. For monarchists, it's being born royal. For industrialists, it's being elevated by the invisible hand. For misogynists, it's having a penis. For racists, it's the color of your skin or whether you were baptized or circumcised or want to go on a pilgrimage to Mecca. But if you zoom out to 10,000 feet, you'll see that all these right-wing movements share a fundamental belief, that fitness to rule is in the DNA. Maybe it's the presence of a Y chromosome, maybe it's emerging from a lucky orifice, but it all boils down to the same thing. Eugenics. Antitrust is anti-eugenic. It's about pluralizing power, about giving a veto to states over corporations. It's true that some of those states aren't demo- It's true that some of those states aren't democratically accountable. Xi Jinping is a formidable trust buster, but states can be democratically accountable, unlike corporate cartels. By definition, the ground state of the corporation is autocracy. One boss, one vote. The right killed antitrust. For most of its history, antitrust was a legislative guillotine for Sherman's kings of the necessaries of life, metaphorically decapitating industrialists who acquired unchecked power and, crucially, intervening to block mergers and other maneuvers that would help them attain that power in the first place. For decades, the Chicago School of Economics fomented a surreal conspiracy theory about the true meaning of antitrust. They claimed that antitrust's purpose was and always had been to prevent the formation of inefficient monopolies that raised prices or lowered quality. They argued that most monopolies were efficient, and that they produced consumer welfare, and that the pursuit of antitrust for its own sake would deprive the world of the bounty of these efficiencies, the low prices and superior products that a good monopoly could produce. The Chicago School proposed that monopolies should only be subject to regulation when they were mathematically, provably inefficient. They rejected the idea that we should prevent monopolies from forming counseling us to wait and see whether a monopoly turned out to be inefficient before we trained our firepower on it. They sold this fairy tale to Ronald Reagan. 
he was easy to sell, and to every president since. It helped that billionaires poured fortunes into supporting this nonsense peddling. Here's how that worked out. Today, it is essentially impossible to pass a law, no matter how popular that law is, if corporate interests oppose it. Even when antitrust enforcers train their firepower on monopolies, they are wildly overmatched and must sustain their enforcement action for years or even decades before attaining a result. Note that this is finally changing. Don't let them tell you that the point of antitrust is to increase competition. The point of antitrust is to increase accountability. From its earliest days, the anti-monopoly movement has understood that while competition can make businesses more responsive to workers and customers and instill caution in firms contemplating overt acts of political corruption, not all competition is good competition. We don't want a competition for which companies can abuse our human rights most efficiently. The point of antitrust isn't to make companies work better. It's to make them fail better. It's to ensure that abusive employers can't buy off the National Labor Relations Board, that payday lenders can't buy off the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, that polluting industries can't buy off the Environmental Protection Agency, that murderously reckless aerospace companies can't buy off the Federal Aviation Administration, that intergenerational pharma crime families can't buy off the Food and Drug Administration. It doesn't matter if a monopoly is efficient. If we let rich people structure our lives, if we yield to the right eugenic insistence that some are born to rule and the rest to be ruled, we pay a price so high that it erases any efficiency gains. In the short term, it's efficient to build an apartment complex with no fire doors, to toss your waste into the street, to drive drunk rather than paying for a taxi. It's efficient for a while. A benevolent dictatorship is very efficient, providing the dictator is A, benevolent, and B, infallible. Today, antitrust is undergoing a renaissance with some genuinely bold ideas making real strides through our legislature. Some of that progress is thanks to the support of a rogues gallery of the most disgusting right-wing creatures to ever slime their way through Congress. In light of this, you could be forgiven for thinking that antitrust is a reactionary right-wing cause, but that would be wrong. These same lawmakers never met a monopoly and its super PAC they didn't like. Their highly selective support for antitrust is entirely driven by the deplatforming of Alex Jones, Milo Yiannopoulos, and Donald Trump. As Anil Dash puts it, they're motivated by the pretense that the real problem is that the algorithm isn't giving their shitty content unfair amplification. If big tech was to reinstate all the right-wing trolls and promise to open every board meeting with a solemn stolen likes acknowledgement, those Republican trustbusters would immediately revert to cheerleading for monopolies. It's true. The tech antitrust movement does include some fair-weather friends who aren't on board with a progressive vision for society. From telecoms giants who want to shift some big tech profits to big telco, to entertainment giants who want to shift some big tech profits to big content, there are a hell of a lot of fellow travelers out there betting that they can awaken antitrust from its 40-year coma and then put it back to sleep. They're wrong. 
The antitrust movement has more partisans than they know. From wrestling fans to everyone who wears glasses, from drinkers to anyone who's ever bought something that came out of a shipping container, from journalists to musicians to nurses, we all suffer under monopoly. Today, we endure kings over the production, transportation, and sale of the necessaries of life. They are ripe for a revolutionary overthrow. Well, thank you very much, and I'll talk to you next week. Stay safe. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week. <laughs>